Hi, today we're joined by Sherry Fisher, an educator with more than 30 years in the classroom. You'll see she has education virtually ingrained in her very being as she grew up with a family of teachers. And not only that, her father was her principal from the time she was a child until she entered high school. Sherry shares the importance of creativity in the learning environment, but even more, the importance of compassion and empathy for our children and students. She gives us concrete tips on ways we can incorporate learning in every aspect of our lives. Getting our young learners away from the screens of every kind and the tricks and activities she added into the day with her own children and students. And don't miss the powerful starfish story at the end that encapsulates her deep love of reaching each and every one of her students. I think you'll find this conversation informative and helpful, and you'll be crying for more stories from Sherry at the end. You'll find other fascinating conversations at Doodles with Donna, where we speak with a myriad of different types of people on methodologies and educational subjects. You can also find concrete activities at my website, scaffoldingmagic.com, that also address virtually every methodology. So let's start right in with my conversation with Sherry Fisher, mother, educator, and a lover of exploration in all aspects of life. Sherry, thank you so much for being here. Why don't you tell us where you grew up and what your educational history is? Very briefly. Thank you for having me. Okay, so I grew up in Monroe, New York, which is an hour north of New York City, and uh, spent a lot of time going to New York City and all the hustle and bustle. But uh, my educational journey is very interesting because... My dad was my principal most of my life. My grandmother was a teacher and my aunt was a teacher and my mom was a stay-at-home mom and she did daycare for teachers' kids. So it's like my whole life was, was teachers and getting to know teachers and seeing them out of school, which was always interesting because, um, you know, you think as a teacher, oh, my teacher just like lives at school or something, you know. So I saw teachers doing things that probably I shouldn't have saw them doing. <laughs> uh, like at costume parties at my parents' house and stuff like that. But anyway, so what was an interesting thing is I grew up, I was born in 1963. And uh, so I just turned 60. And when I was in school, I'll get to the positive first. When I was in school, I wanted to be a um, makeup artist. That was very fascinating to me. I thought I wanted to go to Hollywood and become a makeup artist and learn how to make makeup and all that. And my parents said, absolutely not. That is the craziest thing. Like, what are you even talking about? There's no such thing as that. Now, this was back in 1980 um, or a little bit before that. And so it was before like MAC Cosmetics, before any of the big stuff, you know? So yeah, it was kind of crazy. So my dad says, no, you can be a teacher or a nurse. Those are your two, two options. So I didn't have any desire to be a nurse. So I went into teaching. And um, my parents, I know, I know this is a little bit off subject, but my parents went through a really bad divorce. And when I was very, very young and I ended up getting very sick, I got shingles when I was in fourth grade because it's the virus of the nervous system. And I had just shoved everything down and I came from a very small town 
And my dad was my principal, as I said. And so when they were going through this divorce, my dad was a bit of a player. And when we were going through this divorce, people would look at me, people being the other teachers would look at me like, oh, how's she doing? How does a child of a divorce work? How does it handle? How does she do this? What happens emotionally? It was before guidance counselors and before therapists and nobody knew anything about a child's emotional response. And I was really depressed, but my mom would say, oh no, no, children don't get depressed. So nobody could recognize that I was going through a depression. Uh, My mom on the weekends would be in bed with the covers over her head with migraines and depression. And, you know, it was really hard. My dad was just making really bad choices. And I had to come to school when people knew he was making these bad choices. And I had to hide from those bad choices, pretend like I was fine because everybody was watching me. And it was a lot of pressure. So when I was in school, I really had that I have to do well. I have to do everything perfect. I have to be the perfect child, the perfect student, and strived really, really hard. Well, when I got into um, high school, well, middle school, my dad transferred from my elementary school to my middle school principal. (laughs) So I still didn't get away from it. So it was still really crazy. And there's a lot of drama that goes on. I'll spare you the details. But anyways, um, when I went to high school, my mom and my dad both got remarried to different people, you know, so they both got remarried and it was not a good situation. I was living with my mom and my stepdad was not um, a good choice in my life. And uh, there was just a lot of drama and a lot of bad situations that I knew I needed to get out of that house. So I went and lived with my dad for a little bit and then just decided I need to get out. So I decided I was going to graduate from high school early. So I did high school in three years. So I did like my ninth grade year playing. And then my 10th grade year was all the 10th grade studies and half of 11th grade. And then my 11th grade, which would be my final year, was all of that 12th grade and the other half of my 11th grade. And so I graduated in 1980. And then I ended up going to my dad's um, college because, gosh, wouldn't that please him and make him so happy if I went to his college? I'd really be a great daughter then. So that's what I did. And then I ended up getting into a relationship and getting married to the star football player of that team because of that college, because wouldn't that really please my dad? Like I was like a bonus child now. <laughs> so anyways, life went on. I'm no longer married to that man. And, and there's lots to that, but I ended up being a teacher. So I just recently retired after 31 years. I did take some time off in between all of that life. Um, So for those doing the math between 1984 and currently was not 31 years, but um, so I did take some time off and I loved being a teacher. So even though I did it because it's what my dad told me I had to do, I ended up making it the best. And I was a great teacher and I, I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about parenting. I learned a lot about Um, students and curriculum. And I ended up towards the end of my career, I was um, 
also a liaison for science. Like I did a lot of science that became my passion was teaching kids about science. And I worked with a company called FOSS, which is out of um, Lawrence Hall of Science, UCAL Berkeley. So I worked with them and then went around to all the different like states. And if a if a school system bought that product, I would train the teachers how to use it. And so I did a lot of teacher training all while still being a mom, all while still being a full-time teacher and uh, did all of that. So it was a lot and I loved every minute of it. I did state conferences. I did set up like conferences in our town for teachers to come and learn. I did lots of how to make a science center in your classroom and try to like encourage teachers to be engaged with science and not be afraid of it because it seems like a lot of teachers didn't like teaching science, that that was something that required them to get their hands dirty. Um, And I'm not saying all teachers, but they were very intimidated. I think a lot of teachers are intimidated to teach science, but science is just the most fabulous thing to teach because the kids are just so engaged. And, um, and you talk about like scaffolding, you know, that it's even in your email. Um, But I talk a lot about silos and I felt that teaching science broke down the silos of regular teaching. And what I mean by that is you have math silo, a language silo, a history silo, and a science silo. When I would teach science, my principal would come in my classroom and he didn't know if it was language time, math time, science time, because everything was so integrated that the kids were writing about their science. They were doing stuff. They were talking about it. So they had communication skills. They learned how to have the language of argumentation. They learned all of those things through the science lessons. And they learned to observe that science is right there, everywhere. And they would go home and tell their parents and their parents would be engaged. So we did so much of breaking down that silo thought pattern of, oh, now it's time for reading, get out your reading book. Now it's time for math, get out your math book. But showing how real life happens and you learn like that. So Sherry, you have given us a huge arc, huge arc, and it's there's so much to unpack here. And I'm going to go <laughs> way back. I'm going to go way back to the beginning, because what you shared with us is that when you were young, you had a lot of family history. You had a lot of challenges at home. You had a lot of social challenges. Your parents were giving you a lot of um, intimidating messages, in, unconsciously, subconsciously. What I find fascinating is that when you start talking about being a teacher, you are incredibly passionate about the methodology that you're using. What I want to do before we get back there, because that's exactly where I I want to end up, I'd like to go back to the beginning, because as you said, you were a fourth grader when your parents were going through a really pretty much um, conflictive divorce, not a very amicable one. You've talked about the social aspects of education. There wasn't a word about what you were actually studying. And I find that fascinating. So my question for you is, what is education in your mind? And the second part of that is, what did your father feel education was that he was so adamant that you become a teacher? Um, ooh, okay. 
I think to do the last part of my dad, why it was so, I think that it was a sexist thing for him. It was a role of, that's a role of a, of a good woman is being a teacher or a nurse. Like, again, it wasn't something like, oh, you can be um, an astronaut or you can be this or that. Like that wasn't even in his thinking. And it wasn't that he discouraged me. It just wasn't even in his thinking. It wasn't in his realm of thinking. Um, He had a master's from Columbia. He was a well-educated man, um, but he struggled with demons. You know, he was an alcoholic. He was violent. Um, He was somebody who was a functioning alcoholic. And my mom was not a citizen of the United States. She was a Canadian citizen. And so she had a green card and she was a legal alien (laughs) at the time. But my question then, I guess, is that if your father had this this sort of violent and violent interior and we all have violent tendencies, we're humans, we're animals. Did his attitude towards women, did his um, challenges with emotions permeate the school in a negative way as the principal? I don't think so, because everybody the the students all respected him and really liked him um but he he was a well respected educator and i think that that might have been part of his demon is why can i be so good here but feel so lousy outside of those doors why can i make wise decisions inside that school okay so then again we're going to go back to the fact that you were talking about you were really dealing with the family dynamics. Am I right? Sure. Okay. Absolutely. And so again, when you were giving us this arc about your history, you were talking about the social aspects. And so my question, I guess, I'm going to go back to how you define education. Because what I'm hearing is that in your case, and maybe in a lot of other children's cases, if they have a tumultuous family life, then education for them could just be a safe haven, physically a safe haven. Sure. So I'm wondering if that was for you and when or if it changed into methodology. So let's get back to the focus of how you see what education is. So I don't think education was a safe haven for me ever, ever. Um, I think education, I think if I went back to what education was when I went into education, It was just the facts, ma'am, just the facts, like learn the facts and be done with life. You know, like you need to know your multiplication facts. You need to know um, that uh, the magic E in phonics, you know, you need to like those were the facts of education. I never thought about education as something you can think about, meaning that Uh, I was allowed to have an opinion about education. And and that kind of the opinion part kind of goes back to the way I was raised, where my dad belittled my mom. He was abusive to my mom. And he didn't feel that she was worthy. You know, she's a woman, so she's not important enough to have an education or have a a say. Okay, but then at school... You're saying you had the traditional teacher-centered education, from what I understand, Mm -hmm. and yes, the facts, you were supposed to give the teachers exactly what they gave, they told you to learn, and you were not encouraged to think, and I think that that's happening still. Um, Correct. So... I think that my, my philosophy of education was when I went 
as a student, I, the teachers that I liked were teachers that used a little bit of hands-on stuff that I got to do something creative. It wasn't like major creative, but like, I can still remember the projects I remember is I had Venezuela was my country I had to talk about. And you had to, I created this like mobile thing and you had to, uh, I put coffee grounds on there because Venezuela's product was coffee. And, you know, like you had to talk about their agricultural. So I liked doing hands-on projects that weren't just ditto type things. Things. So even back then that stimulated me, like when I had teachers that would let me think a little bit or be creative in some form. I, I won a children's book um, contest when I was young. I created a little children's book. So I think that when I went into education myself, in the back of my mind was that's the kind of teacher I want to be. I want to be a teacher that's creative. Um, but what ended up happening is not only was I a teacher that was creative, but I saw the hurting child. I knew that there was more to teaching a child that, okay, here's a, here's a for instance. When I was teaching kindergarten, I had a student come to me. Um, and she was shaking. She had gotten off the bus and she was shaking little five-year-old teeny little thing. And I said, what's the matter? What's the matter? You know? And I got down to her level and I always like touched my students, like, you know, hug them and let them know that they're safe. And she said, mom's boyfriend threw a glass at her when I was getting on the bus and my mom's eye was bleeding. I don't know if she's okay, if she's okay. Now, as a traditional teacher, as I had, Okay, well, sit down. Let's get to your multiplication or whatever. You know, let's get to your reading today. That child could care less what I have to offer them as an educator. They need to know, A, that they're safe and they need to know that their mom is safe. What happens if they're going to go home? Is their mom going to be there? Is their mom still bleeding? She's five years old. So it was, it, it was my upbringing of not being safe not having a safe place, not having anybody say, well, how are you feeling? How is this making you feel? Are you scared? Are you, can we talk about this? I had nobody in my entire life ever asked me, how do you feel? Like, what can I help you with? So you became the teacher that said, how do you feel and how can I help you? So Absolutely. the question here, Sherry, I guess then what I'm really trying to get out also is for parents who are listening to this and they're trying to decide where to send their children. From what I understand, I'm in Europe right now, and what I understand in the States is that it's getting more and more back to exam um, focus. But sure. if you're a parent looking for the best for your child and you have, the, you have options, what would you suggest that they look for, for teachers who are much more personal? Or would you say the effective domain in the classroom would be ideal, but you may not always find that? What would you suggest to parents is more important, the cognitive or the emotional aspect? The emotional aspect is absolutely, because you can't even get to that cognitive if you're, if you're scared and you're in that fight or flight kind of thing. However, I do want to point out, if there is a parent listening... You are your child's best advocate and never forget that. And if somebody now being an advocate does not mean, excuse my French, does not mean being bitchy and being like, I know everything and I'm better than you to the principal or to the teacher, because that's going to put a wall up. 
But being the best advocate, I remember teaching students who the principal would come to me and say, oh, I'm going to give you this child. The parent is really a lot because they're always in their business and they always want this and they always want that. Well, most teachers would say, oh, no, I don't want that parent. And I would say, oh, absolutely. I want that parent. And I would invite that parent in because that parent has some worries. That parent has some insecurities of what's happening. Not that they are worried about me or the school, but they're worried about their child. Is their child getting what they need? Because maybe their child comes home at night and is really upset or confused about uh, something that happened and they want to be pleasing. You know, they want to get that A or they want to get a hundred, but they're not. What's wrong? And the parent's like, I don't know what to do. The parent isn't an educator. The parent doesn't know how to do new math or whatever it is that we're doing these days. So when the parent would come in, it was a safe place for the parent too. So I would tell a parent that you want to send your child to a school that you are welcome to be in. Because I think that that's important that you can be a member of that team. Okay. So then you do see education as a team between the parents and the teachers. And Absolutely. What they say, the best the best case scenarios are schools where the, the principal supports the teachers and they feel supported. The, te- the teachers support the parents and the parents feel supported. Um, many mm-hmm. teachers have difficulty with some parents who are very demanding. The Right. The parents who are the most supportive, usually we don't find them in the classroom. The parents who have the most fears about their own advocacy, about their own inability mm-hmm. to help their students, those are the ones that usually come into the school and are usually more aggressive than other parents. What can you tell teachers who need to deal with parents who are challenging? What advice could you give them? I think the first thing you need to do is try to find the core. What is it that they're after. You know, is it that they want their child to be the best and the star? Well, then they have to realize, well, that's their dream. That's their goal. And that they're going to have to let go of some of that. You know, sometimes parents want to be perfect and parents want their child to be perfect. Well, you have to let them know that there is no real perfect, but what they're presenting to you is their version of perfect. And I think it's important for I think as a teacher, you need to right out of the gate, let the parents know we are a team. Here's my number. Here's my email. And even though a lot of these teachers, and I hate to say this, a lot of these teachers that I saw coming in were like, I work eight to four. Do not bother me before eight and do not bother me after four. No, 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 no. I'm sorry. It's just, you're talking about kids' lives. And sometimes a parent doesn't get off work till six o'clock. So I'm not saying like every day, let this parent call you or whatever, but I always had that communication. And that was something that my family knew was important as part of my job. And I always try to, I sent home weekly newsletters. I sent home emails. I was in constant communication. And yes, it is a little extra work, but that extra work is so valuable. It's more valuable than some of the learning because the kids are not going to learn if they don't trust you and if they don't feel valued. And so it's just so important to spend that time, your energy in those directions. I, I find a lot of these teachers come out nowadays and they can make 
lesson plans like they're going to publish them in a book. They are these beautiful lesson plans. I'm just like, what? How long did that take you? <laughs> and, you know, the time that it took them to make those beautiful lesson plans that probably never even got done because they're so intense, they could have written an two emails to a parent or one phone call to a parent. Okay. So one thing you can do, and I used to do this as well, is send you know, newsletters every week and give as much information as I could. And, and in this case, I had a population that was, it was the lowest economic, financially economic sector in the state I was teaching in. So I don't know if the, many of those messages were read, but I felt it was important. So one thing mm -hmm. we can tell teachers is, be in contact as much as possible. Even if you don't get feedback from all the parents, you know that you're doing the best you can. Um, the other thing is we were talking more, you were sharing a little more specifically about your methodology. And maybe it's not one specific methodology, but what you were saying is that it was transversal. It was cross-curricular. And you found that essential because that's how we learn outside of the school. Um, and apply things. And yeah. apply things. So what can you tell teachers? I I here in Spain, there's a lot of resistance to getting this overflow. There has to be math time. There has to be reading time. There has to be English. There has to be French. There has to be whatever. To me, it seems logical to mix all these subjects together. Why do you think some teachers are so resistant to the idea? I think they're resistance beca resistant because they don't know how. I, I don't know that they're all taught that way. Um, I've been in education, as you have, for a long time. So I've watched the pendulum swing this way, back this way, and back again. You know, it used to be whole language and thematic units and all this stuff. But the bottom line is, you're going to teach reading, then choose some, let, let's say uh, we're going to be talking about plants. Why can't the kids read the books about plants? Why can't, there's lots of chapter books that have kind of sciencey plant stuff, all different levels of plants, but choose those plant books as your resource for your reading time. So you're, so the kids aren't reading about, you know, I don't know, reading about Dick and you know, Jane. something. Yeah. Dick and Jane. Yeah. And their cat and their dog. Right. But they're reading about plants and, you know, then they're learning some of the words that they're going to apply in science. And I did a big thing with my kids all the time. And it would say we'd have a big bulletin board on the back and it would say everyday words. And then we would call them our educational words. So or we would it, it kind of like the testing words, really, you know, because. Honestly, you still have to perform like the circus show of getting your kids to pass these standardized tests. That's where the funding is. The reality is that your kids will be tested. And whether I agree with it or disagree with it, I'm just one person. So, you know, uh, they're going to be tested. But the academic words that they get to start to use, they find really fun. So an instance would be... Um, here's how this all came about. I was testing my students and they were taking a, a test. Now my go-to on my little post-it notes, I have post-it notes everywhere in my life. My go-to post-it note was, I'm sorry, I can't help you with that, but do the best that you can. So like when they would ask a question on the test, I can't help them with it, but it was, I'm sorry, I can't help you with that, but do the best that you can. Well, all of a sudden they're going through this test and I see these hands going up, 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 up. And I'm like, oh crap, what's happening? So I look and they're all, what's this word? What's this word? Well, of course I can't tell them what the word was, but the word was occur, A-C-C-U-R. So it was what moon phase will occur next? 
you know, given like the full moon, what moon phase will occur next? Well, the kids knew about moon phases. It was third grade. That's what they had to learn. But that word hung them up so much that they couldn't get beyond that. So that's when I was like light bulb moment. And I was always into the data of the test. Where did my kids do wrong? Because it wasn't what they not know. It's what did I not teach them? That's how I looked at it. So from that day on, I said, okay, I'm going to really look at this vocabulary and become strong with their vocabulary. And the parents appreciated that. The English second English language students appreciated it. So I would write down like, okay, we just learned this word occur. What are some other words that you might use instead? Oh, happen. All right. So our academic word is occur, but our everyday word is happen. You know, this happened, but we could also say occur. Just like if I said observe, let's observe the uh, trees today and you can change it. So I think what's important for teachers to know is to not be afraid to use social studies or history in reading and to use science in reading. And then, you know, you're going to have, you have to do math. Well, guess what? You're going to grow plants. So you're going to measure them. You're going to measure them metric. You're going to measure them in, you know, standard. You can do things math related in all, all the subjects, but try to make it integrated. It's going to make more sense to them. And that real application is how they're going to learn it better. And what, but what you're really pointing out is about academic language. And I find this a really important subject. Um, there are studies that show that 60% that of the students, and perhaps even more, drop out of school at 16 or 15, the obligatory age, simply because they failed most of their exams. And why did they fail the exams? It's because they did not understand the questions yeah, or right. even the instructions. So when I talk mm -hmm. to teachers and I use academic, what I call academic language, they say, Donna, that's just too sophisticated. And I say, a student knows what a table is because we use the word table. So why don't we use a more sophisticated word, you know, a, a plane that has four, four legs on it. I'm going to get a better example than that someday. Right. <laughs> but you know what I mean? The words we use, they will understand. And you saying right. yourself, we are doing them a disservice if we don't speak at, at a higher level, especially the words that they're right. going to find on exams. Right. And like, take the word observe. Okay. So if I, if I told you to, um, you know, look at this turtle that I have here, you know, look at it. Well, if I'm telling you to look at it, okay. But then if I tell you observe it, well, what does that mean? Okay. Well, observe means that I am going to look at it, but I'm also going to maybe smell it. You know, I'm going to really tell about it. So a lot of times when kids who have English as a second language observe be makes a click because it's more cl or closely related to another word that they have in their language. And you'll find that a lot with bigger words and terms. But and the kids would thrive on that. And they would go home and they would tell their parents, I'm going to observe the clouds today, you know, and the, because the parents would come in and tell me that they're using this academic language and they would get excited when I would write down a word or they'd say, oh, 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 I have a word today. I have a word, you know, and they would want us to write it down on the chart. And then they had science notebooks and so that they would also write it in their notebook, but we had the class one. And, um, and then they would get a kick if I used the 
the like the common word when I could have used the academic word. You know, they love to tell you. <laughs> well, also what you're saying, Sherry, is the the simple jump from using the word look to observe. Observe has a lot of action in it. Observe means thinking. Observe means critical thinking and more sophisticated, a higher level. So um, you probably know that as well as I do, a lot of vocabulary unless we share this academic language with them, it has a lot of shades of meaning that will not occur to them unless we actually explain if we use the word. So if they only ever hear the word look, they're just going to look and they're going to be passive. If we Mm -hmm. use the word observe, just what you said, they're going to be thinking about what they're looking at. So Mm -hmm. it's one important jump up. The other thing that I thought was very important that you said a little bit ago is that you took responsibility for what they learned. So in other words, what you're saying to teachers and to parents is that once we do formative evaluations, once we get feedback from what our students have assimilated from during lessons, we need to consider how we presented material, if we presented the material in a way that they understood it, and not critical, not not being like, I'm a loser, not not being like that, Donna. You know, I'm just saying like, this is great information. Like, let's learn from this information. Data, use the data. Use the data. <laughs> what I hear you saying is it is actually very compassionate, but it's also empowering. Use the information that our students are giving us to either modify or continue on the way that we're Absolutely. presenting material. Absolutely. It's just so important, you know, and, and I think that... And this is just something that I observed later on in my career is when these younger or newer teachers were coming in with these wonderful lesson plans. They were like, hey, I taught it to the kids. If they didn't learn it, then that's their problem. Whoa, whoa, whoa. No, no, no. Let's let, let's not have that attitude, you know. And I think it's important for the parents to understand that putting a child in front of a screen isn't the best choice at all times. You know, I, I go through the grocery store and I see these little two-year-olds with these screens, you know, sitting there while the while the parent is. And I think some of my best incidental learning or teaching of my children, my own children, was when we were in the grocery store. Should we buy this one or this one? You know, why? Well, this one is 16 ounces. This one is, I mean, they were little, little kids, but we would talk about choices. It's that incidental learning. When we were waiting at a traffic light or driving down the road, how many red cars are we going to see today? Can you tally that for me? You know, and so my little kids in the back in the little Blue's Clues notebook was tallying how many red cars we saw. You know, so I just think that parents aren't taking advantage of that little bit of time that they have with their kids. And I'm not trying to be critical. When my kids were younger, I did not have cell phones. You know, we didn't have media right there for our kids. So we had to do that incidental learning. But you know, I just really think that that helps when these kids come into school and they have some kind of understanding of colors and basics and, and things. And I look at my my own children right now. I have a daughter that'll be 31 soon and another daughter that's 26. And when they talk about like their the husbands or their boyfriends or whatever, mom, their mom's never taught them that. <laughs> And, you know, you don't realize that what you do and what so seems so natural to you is not natural. So I encourage people, if you, if you're a parent or even a teacher, maybe get an empowerment 
parenting coach or something, because there are those coaches out there that offer some free sessions. If you're a school administrator or teacher, look for somebody in your community that might be able to come in and do like a workshop for parents. Like, like, just to say, these are simple tools that you can do every day. It's like, you know, doing the laundry. A lot of moms say, oh, I hate to do the laundry. Teach your child. Like, let's sort out the clothes. We have whites, we have colors, we have delicates. Let's sort. We're going to sort things that are the same, sort things that are similar. And for bilingualism, actually, and you can use that short sleeve, long sleeve, and whatever language you have at home, this is very important. You have shorts, you have pants, you have all the different... Mm, you all the different words, yeah. terms for clothes. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's just like sorting the silverware. Okay. I need you to put this in the drawer. I mean, I don't think very many people just throw their silverware in the drawer. Most people have a spoon slot, a fork slot, a knife slot. You're sorting things. And so you're teaching your children to classify. You're you know, teaching that's them to classify. You can also teach addition. I'm putting two forks in. If I put two more in, how many do we have? Absolutely. And that's, that's like, you know, I used to, when I taught kindergarten, I taught kindergarten for 13 years in my career. And I used to do these little letters. Um, they were laminate. I would laminate the paper and then I would cut them, hand press, cut the letters out and then hand cut these little magnets and put it back. You know, you're talking back in the nineties. We didn't have all the fancy silhouette machines and cricket machines. But anyways, I would do like A would be red for like an apple, okay, so that they could associate red for apple. And then we did B was either blue or brown or whatever. And then I would do a capital and a lowercase. And so their homework was to go home and put that onto the refrigerator or whatever, a washing machine, something that was magnetic. And then by the time we got to D, they could make dad, bad dad. And they always would laugh because they could write, you know, do the words bad dad. And uh, so we would, you know, start to think what words could we make? And so I would tell the parents that, you know, when you're cooking dinner, have your little child go over to the refrigerator and just say to them, go find me the B or go find me the letter that makes the B sound. And so here you're cooking and you're doing all this, but they're going over to the refrigerator and bringing it back. Great. Go put it back and find me the letter that makes the cook sound. You know, so it's not that they're reinventing the wheel. It's not like it's rocket science. It's just a matter of taking a little bit of time and showing the child. And it's, it's instead of going in front of your phone and playing a little video game on letters, this is that interaction. And you're getting to see, oh, you know what? I'm really seeing that my child keeps reversing that B and that D. Um, I need to think about that, or I need to ask the teacher about that. Is that a problem? Is that something I should be concerned about? Or when I'm saying uh, S, they're saying F, you know, like, is that something I should be concerned about? You're not going to find that out if they're doing that on an on a device. Okay. The other thing you're also saying, which is really, really important. I talk, I speak with a lot of parents who have very young children and they want to send their children to a Waldorf school or to Montessori. Um, either there's no school near them that have those, those methodologies or they're very pricey. And those schools themselves will admit that they're very pricey. And right. what the teachers themselves will say is that you can accommodate them at home. You can use the same methodology at home as they do in the schools. You can use stories. Waldorf is big on stories. And Waldorf is not just for preschool. You know this yourself. Waldorf was actually first started for um, primary and, and junior high. And they use stories until they graduate from high school. 
So these are things is what you're saying. You can use it at home. You can use anything that's going on in the authentic environment to be a learning curve. Mm -hmm. It's that incidental learning is what I always call it. It's like, it's their learning, you're teaching, but they think you're just being the most magnificent parent and you're attentive to them, you know? So the other thing I wanted to go back to was the curriculum points. There are a lot of teachers who feel the complete necessity to check off everything they have in their curriculum. They feel that the parents are going to know whether they finished every single page in the student book that the parents had to pay for. They feel that the principal is going to know exactly what they did every day of the year. But that is faced with what are the students learning? If we have to do every single page in the student book, if we have to check off every point that's on the curriculum, and there are a lot of points, you're doing your job. The parents will be happy. The principal will be happy. But how much has the student learned? And so what would you tell teachers in the face of deciding, I want to make sure the student is learning or I want to make sure I keep my job? First of all, that's a big thing. Students are learning versus keeping your job. Shouldn't it be, I'm keeping my job because the students are learning, (laughs) not despite the fact that I'm not using the textbook that we paid for. Um, uh, I have a lot to say about that. So here's a, for instance, Um, we adopted a reading series at my school when I was teaching elementary school and they were very firm about this is how you teach it. And you had to, uh, all the kids had to be in a letter, like they were in, you know, some level that was associated with a level and you pick those books from that level and that's what they were had to read. So I tried to figure out, which took a little bit of time. How can I still use the books that the school purchased as a resource, not sort of the, if only I have to, I have to teach this this way. I have to teach letter M, the first book in letter M today to these students. I went back to my heart that said, okay, so these students are in letter M, these students are in letter S or whatever, but then I would pick books on, let's just say plants, because that's what we talked about. And I would look through those M books for plants and each child would have a book at their level, but it wasn't necessarily in the order that the school provided, but they were working in their level, but on the topic that I wanted. So I used it as like a great resource. I didn't have to go out and buy books. I didn't have to go out and look for books, but it did take me some time to go through those books and find them. As far as workbooks go, there's a couple of ways that I handled that. Some might not be very good, (laughs) Um, but okay. So I would use them as a reference. Okay. I would also use them as like it, like a homework if they wanted to do rip out a page and bring it home and that could be their homework so their parents are like oh look you're using your book so it was just like a little little extra um sometimes i sent the books one year i just sent the books home right at the beginning of the year and i said here's the book um i teach from other resources but you can use this book as extra work for your child if they want to you know if you feel like they're they need something extra So that was all approved, you know, but again, my scores were always very, very good. So I could back it up with 
that. So I would say to a teacher, as long as you can back up what you're doing and have a passion for that and show them how you're not just tossing it away, but you'll look through it, you'll use it in some way, but that can't be your only source of teaching because it's not creative. It's not for everybody. If you have a class of 30 kids, maybe 10 could learn from a a, a workbook. The others need something else. It's not all inclusive, even though they think it is. Okay, so what I'm hearing is that parents perhaps may not realize that teachers are so often using intuition instead of dictates, and that parents maybe need to take a step back themselves and have a little faith. Not all teachers, but I think that probably most of the teachers I know have very strong intuition, but they don't have the confidence to use it simply because of the administrative consequences. So I'm wondering if parents who might be listening would be able to examine their own goals and perhaps give the teachers of their children a little more flexibility, knowing that just as what you're saying, the end goal, we are living a world where exams do matter. We are living in a world where standardized exams are extremely important getting to higher education. And that's my next question to you, by the way. Um, But maybe parents need to take a step back and realize that all of the materials that are offered to their children may not be necessary and may not be offered in the way their child needs to learn. There's lots of styles of learning. And one of the things that I do with my students, not my kindergartners, but once I taught a little older from second grade on, um, I would interview them at the beginning of the year and ask them, how do you like to learn? Does it matter if your classroom is noisy? Does it matter if your classroom is quiet? Does it matter if you have book work? Or like ask them those things. And then I would share the results to the whole class, not pointing out a student, but just say, boys and girls, did you know that in this class, we have kids that just really like a quiet class? And we have kids that like maybe music playing. So as the teacher, I have to try to make everybody happy. So sometimes we're going to have music playing. And if that's not your favorite time, you can hang in there and wait for the next person, you know, the next time when it's a quiet time, that's that's your quiet time. But I'm respecting that everybody has a learning different, a different style. And I think it's important for the parents to realize that their kids have different styles and that their kids are in classrooms with different styles. Um, But again, I want to go back to being an advocate for your child. You might know, you might have a child in an older grade, and you might know that teacher X did not work for your child. Or maybe teacher X was great for child A, but child B would be mortified in that classroom. You know, that's that quiet student who just needs a teacher who's just so quiet. Where your other teacher was like, woohoo, woohoo, and that was great for one of your children, but not great for the other one. So again, being an advocate for your child in the right way, don't go into your principal and say, do not put my child in teacher boo boo boo's class. But just say, I know my child, this is their learning style, and I really have witnessed teacher X. And I just think my child would be a really good fit in that class. And I would really appreciate you considering that. That's being a strong advocate and not waiting for the disaster to happen to be in the wrong teacher's class. Okay. And what you're saying is exactly what we're talking about. Your intuition, which is brilliant. It's about being more aware of our own learning styles. And it's about student agency. And the United Nations and the OECD 
are also, they're adamant that we are aware, that we help our students become aware of their own learning styles. There's something I call the question continuum. It's actually on the sheet that I gave you for the questions. And it's from lower order to higher order questions. And I use this for my, the teachers so that they use it with their students. And what it is is trying to get to the, to the really root of what your most effective learning style is. Do you learn better by yourself? Do you learn better when you can talk? Do you learn better when you can move? Do you learn better when you can sing, when you can dance, when you can listen or speak? We need to be aware so of this. And it's about so student agency. So just listening to you, Sherry, are two huge things. First of all, you believe in developing student agency. And two, your intuition is very, very sharp. So what I'd love is for parents to be aware that even if you don't say to them, listen, this is what the United Nations is telling us we need to do. Your intuition is right on target for what their child actually really needs to be learning in school. Not so much the right. content, but how to learn the content. Right. Because if you're, if you've got a wiggly child and you're telling that child to sit in their seat and that teacher's going to spend that whole day in your seat, get in your seat, sit still, sit still, sit still. That child is going to become like, I hate school. All I hear is my teacher telling me to do something I can't do, you know, but all you do is you move the chair away and let the child lean on their desk like this and they can wiggle and you put them towards the back so that they're not blocking somebody else. And problem is mostly solved. And it's easy. It's not a power play. It's not like, well, I want my child to sit in that seat. Well, if you want your child to sit in that seat, then you're in the wrong profession because not every child can sit still in a seat for 90 minutes, 60 minutes, or even 20 minutes. And I think it's important for the parent, again, to be the advocate. It's not saying that your child could go in there and start throwing things around. There's responsibility and there has to be consequences. But when you know your child is a wiggler or a mover, then let's work together as a team and figure out how can we make this a positive environment for them to learn. They're going to spend a lot of time here. They need to like it. <laughs> and biologically, the human body is not made to be sitting. I mean, you're supposed, well, some, to a certain extent, they say that double your age is the maximum we should be sitting. So if we talk about preschool, a five-year-old should be sitting no longer than 10 minutes at a time. And if we're talking to primary school, an 11-year-old, 22 minutes is a long time for a child to be sitting. And then you have recess, which is being taken away. And then you have teachers who punish the kids. Oh, you weren't in good in school, so I'm going to take away your recess. Oh, what? <laughs> That's what the kid needs the most. You know, maybe if you're going to take away anything, take away maybe their freedom of recess, but let them like walk around or do something, but do not put them up. I see so many teachers that used to have the kids up against the wall doing work. And I'm like, you are missing the point here, honey. <laughs> that child needs to move. Take his action now. They're going to be so much better in that classroom later. <laughs> so Sherry, you were saying that you have a 26-year-old and a 31-year-old daughter. I do. Mm -hmm. How do you yeah. feel about higher education? <laughs> um, I, I feel it's important, but I don't feel it's the end all. If either one of my girls said that they didn't want to go to college and make choices other choices, I would absolutely support that. Uh, my oldest is a, like her mom, a lifelong learner. She loved school. She was just, oh, she was just the gem of, of students. And she went to high school and received tons of scholarships, you know, um, went to a local college, a university that was local to us in Virginia when I lived in Virginia. 
And, um, you know, we were going, I was going through a very bad divorce when she was a senior in high school. And so it was very violent. My husband uh, was actually arrested for domestic violence. So it was a really tough time for me and my kids. Um, so, and, but I will take a little side note here that even though I was going through terrible, terrible times uh, in my podcast, I would talk about this and I've had parents reach out to me and said, wait, you had my kid that year. I had no clue that you were going through any of that. So I find that as a testimony to my faith and a testimony to my um, spirit of teaching that I would go in and pretend like this is the doors are different. I'm walking into my school and I am Mrs. Whatever, you know, and I'm going to teach and I'm going to give these kids the best that I can give them. And it really gave me a purpose when I was going through the worst time. I would come home from school and just like cry, you know, and be a big blob. But anyway, so my daughter got her, uh, going back to that, my daughter got her undergraduate and then she went and got a graduate degree. And she, while she was getting her graduate degree, which was at William and Mary, I don't know, that's a pretty big school here in the States. Uh, she worked as the Dean of Admissions for the university. And now she works at another university. So my daughter works in higher education. My oldest, my youngest is a brilliant, um, brilliant girl. And she works uh, in technology. And she actually goes and presents to generals at the Pentagon. So she does like secret, secret stuff that I don't even know about. <laughs> so they're both like really good, have really great jobs and, um, you know, are, are, they did go to school. My, so was it a result of their university education, do you think, or is it really just about their dedication to the to their dreams? I think it was university. I think that I'm not sure. And, you know, that's an interesting question because I always just kind of raised my girls a little old fashioned. They were they were uh, oh, I was old fashioned mom <laughs> and um they just knew like, okay, you go to high school, then you go to college. Like if they had come to me and said, mom, I really don't want to go to college or I want to go to college for this or that. I was up for anything, but they just thought the progression was you get out of high school and you go to college. So I never really offered up like, well, you don't have to go to college if you don't want. <laughs> so it was just like a given. They and, went to liberal uh, arts colleges, right? Is that correct? Uh Yeah. Okay, no, yeah. no, no. I say that very positively because I'm just wondering if by choosing yeah. liberal arts that it really did help them expand their minds in different ways that add, add to their profession, whether they realize it or not. Well, maybe it did. I don't know. Um, my daughters are both very strong-willed. I have one very, very conservative daughter. Um, and then my, my oldest is very conservative. And my youngest is a little bit more free-thinking. Uh, she's very intuitive. And very, um, and she's the computer one, which is kind of surprising. I'm not so sure. Like she just knew that she was really good at computers. Like it really made sense to her. Like anything technology just makes sense to her. And so she can get into these computers and just be like, oh yeah, well, this is how this program is going to run. And this is what it needs to do. And I'm just like, what? How? Ugh. Like, how do you know that? But then what you're saying is that that's what she can do intuitively, but did university studies actually help her? In other words, there are two things here. 
Did it help her yeah. in her studies or did it actually just having the degree help her get the jobs that she wanted? The degree helped her get the job. Okay. Yeah. I don't think she would have, she certainly wouldn't have gotten this job if she didn't have a degree. Okay. Um, because we're talking about it's financial. It's, it's financial yeah. in the end. And there, there's a sure. big controversy sure. about the fact that it once again divides the society. If you have the money, then you can get a degree and then you can get into, you have more opportunities professionally. If you yeah. don't, you're automatically, pre you're prejudiced against getting certain jobs. Right. Now, I will tell you, in my youngest, in her university, there was 400 kids in that program, 75 were women out of 400. So even financially, you're looking at like a woman in technology was an oddity, you know. So, um, but I will also tell you that this is an interesting thing. My daughter, my oldest daughter was just always so smart. Now she wasn't what they considered a gifted learner. Like we have gifted programs here, but she was just a really smart a plus. She was like fourth in her class. Very, very, very smart, but she was somebody who took initiative in her learning. So she rewrote her notes. She like really functioned. And then my youngest was a gifted learner and she I would say, oh, honey, you have a, a test tomorrow. Are you going to study? Mom, I don't need to study. The teacher went over it like 500 million times because none of the kids ever pay attention. So she has to keep telling us everything. I already know it all. And she would get hundreds on all of her tests, all of her standardized tests. She would get 600. So she was always getting these awards for getting all the tests, you know, really great because she just said, oh, I just paid attention. They just repeated it. Well, then she went to college and she struggled because they don't repeat. They just are more like, you need to learn this kind of on your own. Like, I'm going to give you a, a synopsis of it, but you've got to do the reading. You've got to do the work. And so she struggled in college. It was really different. She ended up failing two classes that we had to pay for again. Um, but it was an eye-opening experience to have my gifted learner, the one that struggled in college, because she really had to learn how to learn. But it also sounds as if she did not have the benefit of a teacher like you, her own mother, who helped yeah. her find out her best learning style. So she assumed that the repetition would continue on. In other words, she was almost a passive learner. Someone was telling her and her learning style was being able to assimilate knowledge through listening. But in university, you need more responsibility, you need more agency. Right. And if you're not aware of that, then you get lost in the cracks, which is sort of what happened to your daughter. Now, yeah. I'm going to ask you two more questions because you okay. have a wealth of knowledge, a wealth <laughs> of knowledge to share. And I could talk to you for hours. So, Sherry, my first, my first of the last two questions is this. It is so obvious, your respect for education, your passion for it, your intuition and your enthusiasm and the fact that you reflect on your learning. That is the, I think that these are the best qualities for teachers. So why is it, do you think, that the teachers have such a bad reputation? I, I think part of their bad reputation is earned by some teachers. Some teachers don't put in the effort, you know, and, I, and what I mean by that is they don't do the reflection part. They don't, they don't get in tune with their students. You know, some of them think 
that this is just going to be a regular kind of job. And teaching is not a regular kind of job. It's everything but a regular kind of job. You're dealing with humans <laughs> and not just the 30 that you have in your class. You're dealing with their parents and all their baggage and their experiences. Plus you're dealing with principals and then other teachers. So, I mean, to be a teacher, you have to have the preparation in your mind that you're going to deal with a lot. Um, you know, I dealt with mean girl teachers, teachers that were mean to me, other teachers, because they didn't like that I would do this or I would do that. And they thought I was just trying to be better than them or whatever they had to go through. So I think you need to have a lot of tough skin and you need to understand uh, that it's not always going to be easy. That's never going to be easy. But I think teachers also get a bad reputation because here in the States, we have we still have um, a summer break. And people, even though this is not true, and people think, Oh, you only work 10 months. So you are, oh, you can't complain about anything. You only work 10 months. Well, I will tell you as a 31 year teacher, I ended up making $71,000 a year at the end of my 31 year career. $71,000 outside of Washington, DC. I, I live right outside of Washington, DC. You ask me, my daughter makes more than that. She's 26 years old and she graduated college and walked into a job making more than that. But the other thing is, I think that's really important, Sherry, is that when I first became a teacher, they gave me an hourly rate. And so I figured out how much I was making. When I actually got the check, I realized that that is stretched out over 12 months. Right. And that's so true. And I think that because sort of we settle as teachers, for that low pay and that um, kind of abuse that we get from a lot of areas, people just kind of shove us aside because we tend to be very passive about it. Because most of the time, teachers are teaching from passion and they love their students. They love what they're going to do. And so the money isn't ever an issue for a teacher. And I think that that almost disqualifies us for some of the respect that we should get, you know, because you see these people making hundreds of thousands of dollars as athletes, not very good role models at all. And they're making so much money and, and actors and actresses and musicians are making so much money and teachers, they wouldn't, those people wouldn't be doing anything without teachers yet. We're the bottom of the totem pole. So I think that because we don't kind of, know how to get around that, that it's just a natural disrespect. Does that make sense? It does make a lot of sense. And I would say that um, money is an issue, but if someone like you, and the reason I stayed in teaching so long is from the passion that I did want to make more money, but my passion was so strong. I stayed in the class because the satisfaction was so large. I'm one of those teachers who spent a lot of my salary on materials because I oh, couldn't get it. Absolutely. But, absolutely. And, and there, is a, there is an element of martyrdom. There definitely is. And I think that that's what we need to look at. And if we had more time um, as teachers, we would be able to fight the administration. But the fact is that most of our energy and time is put, in, is put into trying to help our students learn. And on a little side note about some of the difficulties, I've also in my career have found that the newest principals are so uh, inexperienced 
And that is an issue. They have not spent time in the classroom. It used to be you had to be a principal for so many years or a teacher for so many years before you became a principal. You can be a principal right out of the gate and never spend one time in the classroom. And that's a disservice to the profession because these principals will say, you need to do this. You need to do that. You need to do this. And you're like, what? <laughs> and also if they're not going to pay us, then they need to lower the class size because that's a huge thing here in the States is that our class sizes are so big. You know, we have 30 kids per class. When I taught middle school, I had 191 students one year. 191 students, like in the course of my two days, like we did an AB schedule. That's a lot of kids. It's exhausting. It's exhausting emotionally. So yeah, this leads to the last question. You may have already answered it. I'm going to ask it anyway, because on this question continuum, which I happen to love, uh, the last one is what if, and the what if is exactly what you're talking about is offering the opportunity for creativity, for personalizing information and to give your own desires about whatever subject it is. And so I'm going to ask you, what if you could talk to an educator who is just about to step into a classroom? What do you think the most important element they need to know is? Remember your why every day. Remember your why. Why did you want to become a teacher? And did you want to become a teacher because you want the best test scores in the nation? <laughs> That's different from a teacher who wants to make a difference in the life of a child. And so you need to remember what your reason is. You know, the story of the starfish, the old famous story of the starfish. Do you know that one? where somebody is, um, it, it, the story varies, but let's just say there's an old man walking on the beach and the tide has come in and there's all these starfish on the, on the shore. And if they stay on the shore, they're going to die. So he's picking them up and throwing them back into the ocean. And somebody comes by and says, sir, what are you doing? And he says, I'm throwing the starfish in back into the water. They'll, they'll die if they're on the shore but there's hundreds and hundreds of starfish. What difference do you possibly think you can make? And he picked up one starfish and he threw it back in the water and he said, I made a difference to that one. Wow. Wow. I'm getting so chills. You have to, yeah. You have to remember your why every day on those toughest days that you don't want to go back into that classroom. You need to remember, I'm going to make a difference. Maybe today it's just to that one kid, but I'm going to make a difference. And maybe some days it's just going to be you. Maybe you're going to make a difference to you because you're going to give, oops, sorry, my dog's barking. You're going to give um, that child a hug that didn't have a hug for the whole weekend. You're going to give a child a snack who didn't eat all last night. You're going to give a child the feeling of, oh, I knew that answer. I didn't know I could know an answer. And that's going to make a difference to that child that day. Sherry, all of us, I wish we all had teachers like you. Your passion <laughs> is, is just, is tactable. Um, it, it, but the, I struggle right now as a retired teacher. I struggle because I got so much from those kids and those families, and I'm still friends with the kids and the parents. I mean, I still love them all dearly, but as a retired person, I, I'm finding that void and it's really different. <laughs> I didn't think I would have that void. Well, it's interesting. We're going to find a way to, to fill that void. Sorry. <laughs> um, the point is here that um, the best of teaching is about this, is about teachers who are reflective and passionate and uh, believe in themselves, find a way to believe in themselves because every day is a learning experience for us as well. 
So for teachers yeah. and parents who may be listening, I hope that what they're getting from you is, is um, how transient learning is, how incredible education can be, and all the options that we can look at to get to, uh, to find our own agency within it. Right. And there's resources out there. There's podcasts on parenting there's find a voice that resonates with you if you if you feel stuck find a resource that will help you because there's so much out there and you can you know find a situation but never feel that you're alone because you're never ever alone there's always somebody that's been where you've been or is going through it right now with you <laughs> okay that's yeah and we're going to offer resources right here in the in the yeah, final yeah. part of this so sherry thank you so much for participating and telling thank us your you. story and being so vulnerable and open <laughs> and generous with all your information and i hope that we get a chance to talk to you again sometime yes that would be great thank you And thank you all so much for joining me. There will be so many more interviews and so much more information for you. In the meantime, you can find me at Donna at scaffoldingmagic.com and at my webpage, scaffoldingmagic.com. Have so much fun in your classes and at home. See you soon.
And thank you all so much for joining me. There will be so many more interviews and so much more information for you. In the meantime, you can find me at Donna at scaffoldingmagic.com and at my webpage, scaffoldingmagic.com. Have so much fun.